0: And welcome back to Mav Geeks a military aircraft obsession with myself, Alex Gill, and Ginny Carlin. It was great to be looking at the future of aviation in last week's episode from DSEI, but this week we return to form looking at some of the most iconic out-of-service aircraft. This is MavGeeks. Cool, so uh, welcome back to Mav Geeks. This is episode three of our brand new podcast here on BFBS. I've got to say, Jenny, last week at DSEI <laughs> was absolutely brilliant. I loved it. Uh, you were there for the for the whole week. I was only there for one day. You, your feet must have been killing by the end of that.
1: Oh my gosh, my feet were in ribbons. I was actually hoping that somebody would invent something that was just like casters for your feet so I, somebody could just push me around <laughs> like a shopping trolley, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what I really enjoyed as well was the technology was was so fresh it wasn't even invented <laughs> yeah. it was like you thought about it and they were like yeah we're working on that what it was mad but just so so good
0: yeah it was amazing um now back to form i guess for for our little podcast Jin, because uh, last week was all about brand new tech as as you just said but we're going back to form and going back to looking at out-of-service aircraft and we will be for the rest of the series and I've got to say, what I think is funny about this particular aircraft and episode that we're going to be talking about today is that when I joined BFBS, this aircraft was in service doing stuff, and it's it's kind of gone out of service in my time that I've been operating and working with the military. So it's a you know it's one of the most recent out of service aircraft that the Air Force have, isn't it?
1: I also think that this aircraft is really beloved. It's the sort of fighter aircraft that people automatically think of you know what i mean they yeah. they automatically think of this one and even if you're not a mav geek or a nav geek that everybody knows this aircraft so i, I i'm really i'm really excited about today's episode
0: yeah me too it, it is the classic fast jet i think or it is certainly for for kind of the current generation i think you know when I, whenever i think of a fast jet actually one of the aircraft that i think about isn't immediately the typhoon it's it's this one and i think people uh, may be already guessing which aircraft we're going to talk about and it's the one that's in our mav geeks logo which i really like as well <laughs> um but we're going to be talking to someone who means a lot to both of us uh, a friend mm. from when we were both working out with bfbs in gibraltar on the rock now uh, he was the station commander there at the time and we had a great time on the rock you were there for for a bit longer than me but for, for, from an aviation perspective it's just fascinating because the airport is maddening i mean it's it's one of the shortest runways that any commercial jet can, can land on, and it's got a giant bit of mountain stuck next to it, which just makes it all a bit all a bit strange. You lived really close to the airfield, didn't you, in your I time did. in gym?
1: And it was bliss. <laughs> <laughs> I See, loved some every people second.
0: Say, some people would say living next to an airfield is not bliss, but you're the complete opposite.
1: <laughs> I loved it. Let's let's just talk about Gibraltar, about the the runway. And it is a shortish runway, but it's no shorter than London City. It's a usual Second World War length runway, or it was when it first started out, anyway. But it's just that there's sea at each end, which obviously brings its own kind of jeopardy uh, and its own uh, excitement, I think, probably, uh, when the pilot's coming into land. And going back in the history of RAF Gibraltar because of course it still is RAF Gibraltar. If you're flying on an easy jet or flying on on BA, the airfield is still run and managed by the RAF Uh, and it's got a, a military aviation authority certificate, but I don't think it's got a civil aviation authority certificate. I might be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. But going back in the history of it, loads of big like bombers uh, from the end of the second world war and during the cold war landed there uh, americans landed there it was just massive uh, but when you think about it it was just one strip like i say water at each side and quite a sporting landing i would say for quite a few aircraft
0: yeah so at the at the 27 end of the runway you don't have to come all the way around the rock to land on it and so i always felt the landings on that side were a little bit Uh, less (laughs) I don't don't, don't know Sporting Sporting Sporting. yeah exactly but I remember one time I was coming back uh, and I could tell which way the aircraft was going and he had to go all the way around to the other side Um, and that's like a. it felt like he did a little handbrake turn in the air you know the pilot had proper like stuck the brakes on pulled it round and the whole jet just swings to line up and then you're down on the ground before you even know it it was like a it was like a tactical landing And and I always remember that being slightly hair raising, but also a lot of fun. And it's the kind of landing you, you literally cannot experience anywhere else other than an airport like Gibraltar.
1: There's, there's two things that I will always remember about Gibraltar. Well, two things from the airports anyway. When you would see aircraft come in to land and they get so far down and then they just do a big nope. Nope, 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 <laughs> nope. Uh, and they'd be off again. They sort of have come down, almost landing, almost wheels down. Yeah, you've got two hopes of that, mate, we're off. And to see them go down again and round most people will never see an aborted landing in their life. We were seeing quite a few, but it it wasn't a big deal at the same time, you know what I mean? Because it was just like, yeah, it's not quite right. We we just need to go and line up and do it again. The other thing that I will also remember is the C-17 coming into that runway. The C-17 looked bigger than the actual runway. And when it used to take off to just like come in, offload some parts and bits and pieces, you know, with the Navy being there and stuff, and it would trundle. It looked like when I used to jog it was like when I used to jog that slow <laughs> up the runway. Yeah. Uh, just trundling up, you'd be like, it's never going to go. And it was airborne halfway across the runway, such as the C-17. Uh, incredible.
0: I'm so pleased you mentioned the C-17 landing there. Uh, and I think the A400M can, and the Hercules can, tell you what can't, Voyager absolutely 100% cannot <laughs> land on that runway. It's way too short. <laughs> um, but like, the, I mean, the C-17 is just a, a, a mammoth in the sky. It's absolutely huge. So seeing mm. something so big land on something so small, is ridiculous it's 1.8 kilometers it's nothing i mean there's, there's barely anything there for anyone to land on which i think is incredible and something that we haven't talked about of course is the fact that a very serviceable and usable road intersects this runway which frankly yeah. more, more people spend time walking on this runway uh, and driving on it than aircraft spend taking off and landing on it it's exactly like a level crossing here in the uk for you know when a train's going past because you've got barriers and something will, will whiz by you except it's not a train it's a giant aircraft, and yeah, then the yeah. barriers go up, and you've just got cars constantly on it all the time, and it's it's the most bizarre experience I think. You would, when you and I always like I always liked when you would land, and if you would go past, you always you know would go past the little level crossing bit on landing, and you would just see people backed up, and you'd be like, oh, that's me. It's because I've landed. <laughs> it's just oh funny to see everyone waiting there, isn't it?
1: Because <laughs> it was wasn't it ten miles out that they would put the barriers down and the alarm would start going off. So if people were halfway across, you'd like literally got. You've got a floor ten, got to ten go. mi- Yeah, yeah, you got 10. <laughs> so you got an aircraft that was 10 miles away, so you got the time it was going to land to get across the runway. And can you remember the voice of God as well? The big tannoy was like, get oh, off yeah. the runway.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: that came from nowhere. And you could see people looking around like, where is that from? It was just an amazing time, Al. I think we were really blessed to be there.
0: I think so what was the gate guardian remind me and i can't believe i can't remember what it was i think it was a phantom i think it was a phantom as well yeah Yeah. i'm sure it was
1: the phantom the other thing is al you remember with the runway that that iconic picture of yoko ono and john lennon i do
0: remember that
1: yeah when they got married they got married in gibraltar where was that picture up they were halfway across the runway, and if you yeah. go to, like, the Rock Hotel and stuff that's there, yes. I'm sure this picture's it's iconic picture.
0: Now, time to talk about the, the aircraft for this week and bring, and bring on our guest. Uh, so he was uh, uh, one of our favourite people when we were out in Gibraltar, ex-station commander of RAF Gibraltar, wing commander Greg Smith, a.k.a. Vasco. That was his cool sign during his time on the tornado when he was a navigator, and he shares his stories with us now. <laughs>
1: you need to tell us about your office because it's a shrine, isn't it, to the tornado?
2: I think uh, Mr Smith would refer to it more as a museum than a shrine, which, would probably, which is probably true given the fact the aircraft is now in a museum and it is always a bit bit disconcerting to go along and see an aircraft in the museum that you've flown. It ages you slightly, if nothing else.
0: Something that I always felt as well with, with RAF aircraft, any aircraft that required a navigator, also does date the date the aircraft in some way. I mean, w- tell us a bit about, you know, operating the aircraft and, and, and the roles involved in, in getting it off the ground and, and making it work.
2: Well, there's always a lot of healthy banter. Uh, at, the, at the time the tornado came in, uh, we've kind of reinvented the wheel. We, ha- we had very much a single seat uh, air force in the sense of the primary strike aircraft or attack aircraft were the Harrier and the Jaguar, which were single seat aircraft. The tornado came along, uh, there's much banter about talking bag baggage, uh ba- extra ballast, uh, etc. I think probably to give you one of the first anecdotes. I remember we had to divert into Coltshaw, which was a Jaguar base at the time, which had an engine fire, which always means you want to probably put the aircraft on the ground fairly quickly. Although that is another benefit of the tornado, given the fact it had two engines, which means if one catch is on fire, you've still got another one to fly on, whereas opposed to with a Jaguar with one engine, then of course then it all goes rather, or a single engine aircraft rather, it all goes rather quiet down the back. Uh, So when we arrived at Colter Shore, it wasn't going to be able to be a quick fix for the aircraft. We were staying overnight in the mess. And I, as a token navigator, walked into a bar of two-seat master race, single-seat aircraft pilots, uh, to accept a lot of banter. And I think the best summary I could give them at the time, which was when they said, well, what's the concept of two-seat operations All the rest of it? Uh, And I said at the time, well, if nothing else, when you have an emergency and divert, you've got somebody else to drink with in the bar. (laughs) (laughs) Probably is isn't quite, this isn't quite the purest concept of two-seat operations, but was uh, very much the case. Uh, And I think the the aircraft evolved. So initially, uh, I'll be happy to be corrected, but my understanding, of course, one of the main reasons for the two-seat operations was that the aircraft, when it first came into being, had a nuclear strike capability. And part of the procedures for dealing with nuclear weapons requires two people in the loop for a safety and check procedures. So that's where it started. And then, of course, as the aircraft evolved and went into a huge operational tempo, doing both Northern and Southern watch after the first Gulf War and uh, or between the two Gulf Wars, is that a lot of the workload that was required to be done, you can argue is that you know, two people, two heads, two sets of eyes, et cetera, are better than one. So the aircraft was flying at low level and doing things things like target designation, even though we moved up to medium level in time. um, You know, that's a very capable individual who can fly at low level and do all the target designation, et cetera, and still stay airborne and not end up in the ground. So, and again, in a high threat environment, as we found as we went into Iraq and of of course with with Bosnia as well, the actual managing of the aircraft systems uh, and the self-defense suite, et cetera, having two people involved in that you know, increases you could argue the capacity to be able to do it safely and effectively.
1: The first flight of the tornado was 1974 which is like 47 years ago. Did it feel as as time went on did you feel the aircraft aging? Because even when you, when you were flying it it must have been quite an, an oldish aircraft.
2: Yeah I mean during the course of my uh, time on the aircraft, of course, we have what was called the midlife upgrade, which moved it from a GR1 specification to a GR4 specification. You could argue that it was always an, an electric jet in the sense of, of its, uh, the systems on board. Uh, and, and like anything, you know, like your car, the, the older it gets, uh, um, the, more, the less reliable it will become and the more maintenance it, it requires and then you start to uh, change the infrastructure and add extra uh, bells and whistles onto the aircraft, then by definition, it's it's going to get tired and it's going to get less reliable. And I think that's the same with any aircraft, to the extent um, that the procurement people would probably tell you, that there becomes a tipping point between the time that it's, it's financially viable to keep an aircraft going with that increased maintenance bill versus the, the cost of actually then paying money up front and buying a new aircraft with the expected uh, life and, and reliability that that would bring you. So, yeah, it, it didn't like sitting out in, in the in the wet, obviously, like like most of us wouldn't like sitting out, out in the wet. I, I, and as it aged, then again, things became less reliable. But it was still a very good aircraft for doing the role it was designed to do.
1: But Vasco, let's be honest, that aircraft was a looker.
2: Yeah, I think so, Uh obviously biased in that respect, but it was designed to uh, fly fast and at low level uh, and deliver its effect. And it was a very smooth and very comfortable uh, aircraft at low level. It obviously uh, wasn't designed to, to work at medium level, which is where it ended up operating. And, and therefore, there was a, a trade off in that. But in terms of the job it was designed to do flying, at low level uh, and in a very comfortable platform, and stable platform to do that, uh, again, it, it would take some beating.
0: How many hours do, do you have on, under your belt in that aircraft?
2: Yeah, so, so I end up doing just over 2,000 hours on the aircraft. And I think n- nowadays, I think um, the uh, allocation is for air crews around about 15 hours a month on an aircraft uh, in terms of, you know, because obviously it costs. And I'm not sure that there's a range of figures, but people talk uh, when they talk about the cost per hour of flying the aircraft, it was some range somewhere between about 10 and 15,000 pounds an hour. And of course, that includes everything from engineering to spares to air traffic to fuel the whole nine yards. So I guess 2,000 times 15,000, maths in public, I won't do it now, means I spent quite a lot of the taxpayers' money enjoying my time on, on the aircraft. And I think that was the other thing. I can remember when I was based up at Lossiemouth on 15 Squadron on the OCU there, and you would get airborne off the, uh, the runway there If first thing in the morning, turn just south of Inverness and left down into Loch Ness. And you'd be going down Loch Ness at eight o'clock in the morning. The mist is coming off the the, the, the water. The sun is rising. And you think, you know what? The Queen's paying me to do this. And, you know, there's not many <laughs> not many better jobs you can be paid to experience something like that.
1: Vasco, what what was she like to, to fly? I mean, every plane must have its quirks, every vehicle must have its quirks, but what was a tornado like to fly? I always remember somebody who'd flown um, Harriers saying to me, I always felt like the jet was trying to kill me. Was it a bit like that with the tornado?
2: No, I don't I, I don't think so. I, I think the, the quirk of, of the tornado. And I can all, again, remember the first time I did this, the, the aircraft had what was called a terrain following radar. So the idea was it, it, it could fly in, at any time of the day or night in, in, in any kind of weather so with you know an element of caveats. Because when the terrain following radar was engaged, it wasn't actually the pilot flying the aircraft. The aircraft was flying itself. I can remember the first time we did that at night. So it's obviously pitch black. You're up at a decent height. You're about to go down to low level, uh, unlike the you know, Nor during the day when you're, the pilot's flying at low level and you're seeing what's happening, it's pitch black, and you feel you sense the aircraft as the terrain following radar is engaged, taking you down to low level and flying at low level. And of course, you can't see the hills wow. and the lumpy stuff. I, I don't think you ever got over that feeling uh, a, a strange feeling in the sense of you couldn't see what was happening, but you knew you were very close to the ground and you were trusting than well, trusting a pilot you could probably argue a terrain following radar was a more reliable thing but uh you were trusting a piece of engineering and, and we all know engineering has its foibles so a piece of engineering to keep you safe and alive and uh that was a unique thing about the aircraft it's terrain following radar and something that uh you know you had to monitor very caref- carefully because you had no idea otherwise until it was too late that, that things weren't happening as they should
0: what was the uh, the ethos in the squadrons like? Because a lot of the people we're speaking to, uh, when they look back at their time, they often say it was the people that made their time on the aircraft. Obviously, you loved your time in the seat, <laughs> and that's really obvious, but what were the people like and what was it like to be part of the, the squadrons and the teams that made the Tornado Force? I
2: think you've hit the nail on the head there in the sense of it was a, very much an, a squadron identification. So you, you had various sets of people in, 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 from involved of the posters in the sense that some people... Seem to go back to the same squadron, whether it was just the fact that they were too tight to buy the new badges or whether they had the affinity to squadron <laughs> and other people moved moved around. So I think, again, one of those classic comments at a at dining out night as you left a squadron, a, a tornado squadron, to ideally go to another tornado squadron, one of, those best, one of the better lines was, you know, I'm about to leave the best squadron in the Air Force, but fortunately I'm about to join the best squadron in the air. <laughs> so that, those loyalties uh, went, went around there. And, you know, at a, at a very primeval level that you could argue, I can remember at Bruggen, which was where I first went, to fly the aircraft, which had four tornado squadrons on, on the base. It, it, even in the bar, each of the squadrons had its own corner of the bar, if you like. And and, and that's that identity and that, that esprit de corps that I think you, you generate. And that comes across all different aircraft as well. So we've already touched on the fact that there was that kind of, single seat versus two seat banter of course by definition then you can blob that up to fast jet versus multi-engine aircraft then you can invite flyers versus non-flyers but at the end of the day it, it's a kirk and i know that obviously the engineers were a, a fundamental part of that but other also other personnel on the base what we used to do which i thought worked really really well was we would endure we would invite other members of the base who'd certainly gone that extra mile to assist the squadron to become honorary members of the squadron and i know that was always held in, in high esteem and people really enjoyed being part of an honorary member of the squadron so they could come to the functions the dining in nights and everything and again that helped to spread the ethos and to make it a more a, a very collective concept across across a base uh, rather than just be uh, focused focus on that particular squadron
1: Vasco as you look at uh, aircraft now and, and aircraft past as well if you Hadn't been on the Tornado, which aircraft would you have fancied? Obviously, not all of them have got two seats, but would you have fancied being a part of, shall we say?
2: Yeah, so as I started or finished my training, uh, the Buccaneer was just going out of service. And people always spoke very fondly of, of, of the Buccaneer. At that stage, I think it's, the majority of its role by then was in an overseas role, well, I would get seasick, so I'm not sure if I would been any good on the buccaneer. But actually, it was, it, was, it was that turn whereby, as Alex has already alluded to, navigators were becoming a dying species, if, if you like, even on the multi engine aircraft, of course, and the same with flight engineers. So, what we did have probably about halfway through my time was um, a number of navigators then uh, were asked if they wished to go to the helicopter force, and they started having. Uh, a navigator sat up the front along with the pilot. Um, It wasn't something that appealed to me because I kind of thought that if you go down that particular route, then there's no coming back. And it was the same with people who went into the multi-engine role. And and I understood when some of the people did that because as you get older, the idea of flying around at 500 feet and pulling the G you do, it it is a young person's game. And, And so it's a bit more sedate. And then there was also a period, which maybe would have been more of an appeal to me, where, of course, the army were given or brought into service Apache uh, as an attack helicopter with very little experience of operating helicopters as attack platforms rather than the helicopter's they were used to doing. So, again, in that kind of weapon system, which, of course, a navigated, morphed, really. And the Americans always referred to us as weapon systems operators in that weapon system seat in the Apache. There was very much a push initially if people wanted to either second or transfer across the army to, to fly the Apache, which, again, I think the Apache was a, a very exciting aircraft of its own at the time. But I always felt that uh, in its in its role of a, as a battlefield helicopter, and it still had the kind of might of the Soviet pack at the time, a, a great a, a great aircraft to t- take along to air shows and standby, but not particularly a good one to fly operationally in terms of your life expectancy, mm-hmm. because flying an Apache over a, a congested battle space like it was planned to do, I didn't necessarily think it was going to be particularly life enhancing. So <laughs> there wasn't really anyone directly came in uh, that, that that offered a transfer across although some did go down the helicopter route uh, as i mentioned
1: amongst the tornado like or, or the former tornado community do you still have regular contacts with people or you know is it a bit of a pull up a sandbag or is it still a quite a thriving community
2: yeah so um we've been um, prevented from doing so of late but one of our number set up something called the FinFest. uh the the uh, the, the aircraft is again from its silhouette is iconic for its big fin at the back, which again offers some of the stability that it has at low level. So the FinFest became our annual get-together, our annual reunion, if you like, which was held in London. It's only been going about five or six years now, obviously, without doing it for the last couple of years. So hopefully we will uh, resurrect it. And it's always, the FinFest is always on the first Friday in February. You can see what we're doing there with a bit of alliteration. So hopefully the first Friday in February, we'll have a FinFest in 2022, I found the last one I went to was, was very funny because it's, it's always by the square mile, so a lot of the banking fraternity are there. Uh, the first year, I remember, we took over the, the pub and they ran out of beer. They obviously hadn't realised the calibre of those coming. <laughs> Every year we go, of course, we do get slightly older and greyer, uh, and as it's always a massive turnout, but of course, by end of the normal working day, the normal punters who use the the pub the other 364 days a year start to come back in uh, for, for their evening drinks and i can remember a very interesting conversation at the last one i went to with some uh, you know young thrusters from the banking community arriving back and seeing all these knackered old people as you say probably pulling up some and telling a few war stories to do saying oh well to the barman well, what's going on here the, the pub's normally dead it's absolutely round with all these old coaches and they and they said well these are all former tornado air crew. Uh, that are uh, getting together for our annual reunion, and she turned around quicker as a flash and said, "Tornado aircrew looks more like the Walter Mitty Society." And I guess we probably <laughs> have a meeting with the Walter Mitty Society because I guess we don't fit that stereotype of fast jet aircrew anymore in terms of our, as we as we reach our dotage and get slightly older and grayer, etc. So it was it was it, it, again it put, put me you down to earth that uh, we although we get together and enjoy that once a year, we probably don't quite look the way we used to look and and have them create that impression on people that we maybe used to do.
0: Something I've always wondered is where the, the nickname came from. Why Tonka? What does I've never known what it means. Everyone uses it. And I've had I just have no idea why it's called the Tonka.
2: And you know what? I'm not completely sure myself, but I'll give you an educated Excellent. guess of course. <laughs> that makes is, me feel better. It <laughs> um, is Tonka Toys mm,
0: uh,
1: yeah.
2: of the day. Which were of course big earth moving trucks yeah uh, trucks, and, yeah. and the, the 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 aircraft in its its role uh, was was known as a mud mover because it was a bomber it it, it moved mud so I, i'm assuming tonka toys which were earth movers this was an aircraft that moved earth albeit not with big spades and and, and trucks but with <laughs> with ordnance so yeah. I, i'm assuming that that there's a kind of a link there back in the day because, again, Tonka toys were probably at, at their heyday around the time that the aircraft became uh, more prevalent.
0: But I, I, uh, th- that simple fact I, I find absolutely fascinating because you say it'd say to anyone in the Air Force, Tonka, they know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, and even <laughs> you who's <laughs> flown them, operated them, sitting in a room full of memorabilia, not entirely sure where the nickname comes <laughs> from. I think that's that's brilliant. It's just so embedded into into well, the culture. I
2: think it's great with nicknames. It's the same with call signs, is that you, you get to know people for many, many years, purely by their, their nickname or call sign, mm-hmm. to the extent that sometimes you can have that double take, and, and someone says, well, I, I, I met Steve the other day, who's hey. <laughs> Steve? You go, oh, you know, oh, Bamba, oh, yeah, I know, because you, you do, you do not you don't remember people's names, I even remember in my, in my current job now, in fact, it's during rf 100, we had a couple of debates in the House. So I, was, I had a reference to, to me in Hansards, as a, and I told my mum this. Because I thought, you know, she might be proud of be doing something in life. I said, "Oh, you need to have a look at Hansard. I got a mention in, in Parliament the other day." In fact, I said, "I think I said to, I said to her, you know, I got two mentions," and she came back to me. She said, "Well, no, you exaggerated again." She said, "You only got one mention," and this other bloke called Vasco got a mention too, because of course she asked... <laughs> She said, "Yeah, we got because uh, there was obviously a referral to a wing commander Greg Smith and a referral to Vasco." And she has no idea who Vasco is. Uh, and Why would she? And, but as I say, on the flip side, well, there's probably a people I've flown with who probably would have to do a double take.
1: Who the hell's Greg Smith?
0: So, what's your call uh, sign all about? Where did that? Where did Vasco yeah, come from?
1: Say, yeah, I was wondering that well, too. Well, yeah, that?
2: and that's a, a classic. And it's uh, known, knowing some of the other call signs that were allocated, who those come at the time, I probably did better than most in the sense that this was at the call sign review party. So we used to go to Deci Mamanu, down in Sardinia for an armoured practice camp and also to do some air-to-air training as well. Uh, and the way that's controlled by the controllers on the ground, it's, it's easier to use nicknames because it's, it's it, or, or call signs because it's quicker and it's shorter so they can get a, a message across. So the call sign review party was always done at an event on the squadron. And of course... For those uh, of history will know that Vasco da Gama was, was a well-known Portuguese explorer and navigator, except he wasn't particularly successful And If I, I remember, <laughs> right, he went looking for America and found India, and probably equally as badly, he was one of the members of the Flat Earth Society, so he believed the Earth was flat and if you went to the end of it, you just fall off it. So obviously, my allocation of uh, Vasco was, was a slight on my navigational abilities, You'd assume, but, but as I say, you know, it, years later, you, you are known as Vasco, and, and, and therefore people, it's stuck, uh, and it's probably best to do that because if you get one that you don't like and you tell them, pick people you don't like, and guess what, that it will still <coughs> better. So, yeah, you know, I think I did better than some that, that got it at the time, but they uh, got theirs at the time. But yes, that, it was actually on my very first squadron. That's, that's the history of that one.
0: You're sat in a room now, surrounded by memorabilia. What have, you, what have you got in the room? What are you, what are you staring at? What, what can't we see?
2: Well, I haven't got squadron prints on every squadron I've been on, but I've, what I've done is effectively got one from the first ever flight of the Tornado, which you may recall at the time uh, was a, a tri-national training establishment. The aircraft was designed with three uh, c- countries involved, namely the Italians, the Germans and the Brits. And in fact, I was crewed with an Italian pilot when I was at Cottesmore, and I can remember us going in and doing our first sim together, and he he, he crashed twice in about the first five minutes, and I, and I thought, oh, my Lord, we're about to, i got to go flying with him for real next week. This is quite quite concerning. Uh, then I've got my first operational squadron, and then I've got my final squadron, and the, the three there. Then I have a picture of what was my last, I guess, official flight, in the sense that uh, we went down to RAF Valley, as so I was again, I at him at the time. For a charity event um, and uh, met some uh, spotters that were there who go to the comfort Loop, which is in North Wales and is a very good place to take pictures of any kind of aircraft because of the way the design of the valley means that they can actually sit above the aircraft and take pictures looking down into the aircraft. And we met some spotters there. We left the next day to return home and. Uh, one of the guys who we've met had gone to the comfort group the next day, took the picture and sent it up to the squadron afterwards. So that was a nice picture of my last flight in that respect. I've also got a nice one here, a black and white one, which is uh, was taken when we were doing operations on when I was on the 31 squadron. We were doing the northern and southern no-fly zones. And as I've reminded him, because I believe he also has one up in, in his room, is at the front of that picture is the now chief of the air staff who was... Um, <laughs> Who was a squad leader on, on the squadron with me, obviously had a slightly more successful career than I have given where we both sit now, but uh, but we're at least in the same picture together, uh, so that kind of makes up most of the stuff t- to date.
0: Anything else you want to say, Raskin? Uh, I'll
2: just tell you the story, you use it as, as you want. I was thinking of this one the other day, so I uh, agreed to backseat to go back to uh, RF Finningley as it was still then, to, where, to a guy who was going to a pilot who was going t- to a wedding. And we were obviously going back on the Friday afternoon because the wedding was at the weekend. And uh, we ended up perfectly legitimately uh, wiring the place in terms of the approach to the runway uh, a couple of times on the Friday evening. Uh, with him telling me, uh, you know, as I was a young chap at that time, a bit concerned, him telling me at the time, well, don't worry, I know the station commander here, I used to be based here, he's a very good friend of mine, Not a lot of So... As we landed, the air traffic said to us, "Well, the station commander is looking forward to seeing you in the mess shortly." And he, and he said, "Well, there you go. See, I told you it was okay." But I kind of got the feeling that wasn't that kind of looking forward to meeting you <laughs> in that respect. As in, "Here's a here's a beer. Let's have a chat." It was more to be forget the beer. Let's have a chat. And so as we got into the the changing facilities, and, and, and as I do in a lot of these bases, it had all the the heads of sheds pitched to the heads of sheds up on the wall. So I had a look at. Uh, the pitch he said, Oh, so uh, Group Captain Snodgrass or whatever his name was is a good friend of yours. Is it? Uh, and he went absolutely white. Said, oh, my lord. He said, what? I said, Why, well, what's happened? He said, The station commander's changed since I was last here. Oh
1: so we had just wired
2: the place thinking that he knew the station commander was a good friend of his and it wasn't him. So we obviously. Had, gave the new um, station commander a good one-sided listening to uh, for our our behaviour.
1: So we just wanted to pause it there and say that in the next bit of our discussion, Vasco talks about some stuff that's not always easy to hear. But it's absolutely vital and absolutely valid that it's said. At the end of the episode, we will give you some contact details of fantastic charities and associations that you can get in touch with if you do need to talk. But absolute kudos to you, Vasco, for bringing this up. And that's why we love you.
2: Why do I mention that story? Because unfortunately, years, years down the line, uh, Lego took his own life um, and suffered uh, very badly with, with depression. Uh, and again, I think this, it's across the services uh, and across the forces that you know, this is kind of an unwritten and a quiet issue that we don't necessarily bring out in the open. So I always, and I know we do it at FinFest as well, we always remember Lego, and there's many like him in all walks of life, and it's something we should always be cognizant of, lot we talk about the great times on the tornado and the stuff we've done operationally and 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 for fun uh, but there's always a serious side to everything and it also has sometimes takes a toll on people that we're not always uh, aware of so it's, i think it's always worth mentioning something like that
0: a very poignant message there from our guest wing commander greg smith talking about his time as a tornado navigator and as we know some fantastic times are had but it's not always brilliant all the time for everyone as we just heard Uh, and if anything you have just heard has affected you in any way or you feel like you need to chat to someone then head to our website bfbs.com forward slash audience support where there is a fantastic list of some incredible charities that are there to help you at a moment's notice.
1: Nice one Al. I think that's just about it for this week. Remember if you want to get in touch it is just geeks at bfbs.com can't wait for next week as well because we've got a proper Cold War beauty haven't we
0: it is we're going to go as far back in time as I think we've done with any aircraft so we're we're, we're really pushing it going back in time with this one but I'm very excited for next week's episode so see you then
1: goodbye